Episode 36, Stephen King. And, you know, I started this. I left Ernst & Young. I started my own CPA firm, and I hated it. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. And now on with the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Graven. I'm joined today by Stephen King, and he probably gets this a lot. And before the audience gets too excited, I'm sorry, not that Stephen King. But this Stephen King is uh, really interesting and has a, a great perspective uh, for us. I'll introduce him in a second. Uh, but Stephen, uh, thank you for being here. Um, Thanks, how are you? I'm wonderful. Thanks for having me. So Steve, uh, Stephen King is uh, the founder, president, and CEO of a company called Growth Force. They are one of the nation's largest outsourced bookkeeping, accounting, and controller services for companies and nonprofits that use QuickBooks. So uh, Stephen has quite a background uh, as an entrepreneur. He uh, has a degree in accounting. And one thing I thought was really interesting, Stephen, before we get um, to your story, looking at your background, um, real early in your career, you were CFO of Amnesty International. Yeah. Yeah, that was fun. I got to do that for seven years. I was a volunteer first for three years. And then this is a God thing. Uh, God, I was at Ernst & Young, where I was a manager of accounting system design. I had just given uh, two months notice to go start my own CPA firm, and they hired Ernst to be the auditor. And Ernst uh, didn't have a lot of nonprofits, didn't really want the account, so passed on the audit. But I ended up doing some freelance work, and um, I ended, and then uh, they asked me to run the for everything that was not related to human rights. So I was in charge of fundraising and finance, and you know it was really great. And I did it two weeks after Bruce Springsteen and Peter Gabriel and U2, Sting all did the worldwide human rights now tour and we grew amnesty grew from 6 million in revenue in the united states to 18 million in a year and a half hmm. i came in 2 weeks later and had to design all the systems so it was a great labor of love so even though uh, as a nonprofit there was experience and, and lessons to be learned about high growth situations that i'm guessing served you well sure yeah i mean you're you're uh, you got to be able to make sure you get, you're measuring the outcomes that are furthering your mission. And, and I learned a lot about nonprofit um, financial management and how do you use the data to show the donors the tangible result of your gift? Because mm -hmm. if you can do that, you'll raise a lot more money. So, you know, that's, that's really what, uh, we do more nonprofit work than anything else. It's about 20% of our business. Oh, cool. So um, we'll talk uh, a little bit more about growth force and, and some of the things that you do within the company. But thinking personally, Stephen, you know, thinking back um, over your career and your different experiences, what, what's your favorite mistake? Well, you know, I, I've been doing this for 40 years. And um, what I it wasn't until the last decade or so that I really started to understand how to build what I'm worth hmm. and how to how to get the client to feel good about that, right? To have our long-term relationships with people where you're really making a difference and you're, you're, you're 
contributing in a way that allows you to live a lifestyle that justifies all the hard work and hours yeah. of being an entrepreneur. And, you know, I started this when I left Ernst Young. I started my own CPA firm and I hated it. I was billing $45 an hour. I thought, you know, that's, I was 175 an hour a month before at Ernst and Young. Yeah. <laughs> back, this is back in the 80s. Uh -huh. And I just couldn't justify in my mind charging anybody more than that because I didn't understand the value. And I also didn't understand how a small change in pricing has a profound impact on your profitability, on your bank account. Hmm. And I used to think, you know, I so, so, you know, this is over a couple of decades, had my own CPA firm, hated it. Amnesty became one of my clients. I went over there full time for seven years, built out that system. And then Netscape 1.0 came out in 1995. Right. And I, and I started a company called Virtual Growth. We ended up raising 43 million in venture capital funding. But the, the, the big question here was, how do you price your services in such a way that you can make the margins that you need to make in order to cover your overhead and then generate profit and some cash flow. Yeah. And what in the early days, you know, especially when I was just me, your whole relationship with money comes into play, right? It's like, you know, mm -hmm. your self-wealth and how, you know, what you think something's really expensive may not be what the other person thinks is expensive or vice versa. Yeah. That that lesson, you know, to start was hard because you're you're the widget, right? You're doing the work. But most I see with most of our clients is as they get bigger, you know, we get to a million dollars in revenue. And if you're not making 15% profit, you struggle and sit there and say, if I get to, in order to get to the profitability I need, I've got to sell more. Mm -hmm. And that's the biggest mistake that I see that business owners make. They think they can sell their way to profitability. Mm. And it's only true if you're pricing right. Yeah. You've got if you if you don't have good margin, why do you want to do more poor margin work, basically? Exactly. And it comes from a fear of well, first I think it comes from a not understanding how profound an impact a small change in pricing has on the bottom line. Mm -hmm. You know, I just did an exercise uh, this morning with a two million dollar business. Their average clients, you know, about a hundred thousand dollars. And they they think they're getting, you know, forty percent margins. But the reality is that a third of the time, the sales reps come in and say, I'm in a competitive situation here. Mm. I got to be able to offer this 10% discount and I'll close this deal and we'll make it up down the road with <laughs> services or parts or warranties or referrals. Or I'm keeping a competitor from taking the business or I got people sitting on the bench. Let's get them busy. You know, all these things that make you think like, just close the deal. Sure. I used to always say yes to that salesperson. Yes, I got people sitting around on the beach. And what happens is that destroys your business. Yeah. You know, we have a, a an impact of discounts calculator that shows if you give a if you have a 40% margin, and you give a 10% discount, you got to sell 25% more sales just to make up the discount. Wow. And yeah, your profit, all that discount comes out of profit. All of it comes out of your bank account. Conversely, if you can increase your prices by 10%, now you can sell 20% less. You can take Fridays off. <laughs> yeah. And that's the secret. I found that 
That simple thing. Now, it's hard. You know, a lot of people, we're accountants. Everybody says they do what we do. Now, Growth Force, we do management accounting, right? So we're trying to give you data that's actionable to make decisions. But when you're, before we figured out that value that we had, yeah. you know, we were accountants. 20 years ago, we were just doing bookkeeping and accounting and back taxes. I'm a CPA for 35 years. That's a commodity now. Yeah. And so it was hard for me to go in and say, I got to increase prices. But what we did was we, we created this methodology of, and I learned it from a, a value seller, the consultant who said, what you need to do is first really understand the value that you're delivering. Right. And so what we do is we, we set up automation. We use QuickBooks as our core product. Mm -hmm. The reason QuickBooks has 88% market share is because it's so powerful. But most people only use it like they use Excel, right? To add, subtract, multiply, and divide. <laughs> Guilty, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? It's easy. But you have the ability to allocate your labor costs, which we do service businesses and nonprofits. That's all we serve. And in both cases... Payroll is the biggest expense. Labor costs is by far your biggest expense. Sure. And so once you know how to allocate your labor costs and track the, the direct labor, the labor that the customer was directly paying for, the real cost to deliver your services and move those direct labor costs above the line into cost of goods sold. So you, you know, what cost of goods sold is the direct cost to serve the customer. There's only two parts. There's direct labor and direct materials, the stuff you have to buy to serve the customer. Yeah. Then you can subtract your revenue minus your cost goods sold and see gross profit percentage. And that's the most important number on any P&L, any mm. management report. Mm. Because gross profit creates net profit. And if you can take the bottom 15% of your clients, and this is where the value consultant came in, he said, give them an option, give them three choices. Show them the real value and the costs of what they're getting and give them a fee and say, I have to increase my fees in order to keep you as a client to X dollars so that you get them from the bottom 15% to the top 15%. Or here's a list of all the things that we're doing for you. Right. You can see it. You guys want to stay within your own budget, what we currently have. You can pick and choose and we can afford to do 80% of this or whatever the ratio is. Or third choice is I need to transition you to another service provider. Mm. And that's hard. Yeah. That's hard to fear. What if I lose this account? And what's happened is I've got literally decades of experience showing business owners that I've got one company right now, it's a $30 million business. It's making 2% profit. Mm. We're going to help them get to a 20, become a $20 million business with 15% profit. And he's like, I'll take that all day long. Right. Well, so that's demonstrating value. And that's what, what I hear you saying, Stephen, is um, you know demonstrating how growth force is differentiated. It's not just a commodity. Well, you could leave us and get the exact same service from someone else right. a little cheaper. You don't want to compete that you know, based off of being a little cheaper. And that's the, my favorite lesson, right? Once you mm -hmm. understand what your real value is, and you can see it. If you do that job costing, if you if you take the labor costs, instead of, you know, most businesses, their, their income statement has got an alphabetical list of their expenses, right? Advertising and accounting and bank charges. And then three quarters of the way 
around the, all the P's are together. And it just says payroll, payroll taxes, maybe officer's salary or bonuses. But if that's your biggest expense and you've got it all lumped into like two or three accounts, you can't make data-driven decisions. Mm -hmm. You've got to allocate that based on the work that they do. And what's great about QuickBooks is they own a, a, a time tracking system called T-Sheets that it's magic. If you, you know, it has geofences. So when you're, you know, we do project-based service businesses, our specialty. When somebody shows up at on site, it automatically says, oh, you're at the, the, the ACE, you know, dream account. Are you ready to start your timesheet now? And it hmm. tracks it. Then when you run the payroll, yeah. it's either Intuit payroll or Insperity payroll, have it automated where you can allocate that labor cost based on how they filled out their timesheets. Now you have that data to show the value to make the pricing decision. Yeah. It's pretty cool. So it seems like, you know, at this point, you've got the benefit of all this experience. It seems really clear um, to you about, you know, some of these mistakes you've made or things you've learned to do better. When did it really start to kick in? Like when did, was, was there a single epiphany or was it gradual where you started to realize you needed to take a different approach to pricing? When I really started to focus on profits and not sales. Mm-hmm. When I realized you can't just sell your way to profits. You know, we have 62 people. And when we were, you know, f- 15 or 20, and I was trying to increase the bottom line, all we did was focus on how many leads can I get in? How many new proposals can I get out the door? And how many closed sales can I get? And if I got to give a 10% discount to close that deal, go for it. And when I started to study the unit economics, unit economics is the, the profitability of whatever shows up on your income statement. Your unit is what you, I'm sorry, whatever shows up on an invoice. Ah. The, the, the unit is what you put on the, on the invoice, right? What's the profitability of that? Not what's the sales, what's the gross profit? Gross profit percentage is the most important number because it tells you, it allows you to compare all your different services, all your different clients. I look at gross profit by sales rep. I want to see which of my sales reps are selling me as a commodity and trying to offer the 10% discount. Which sales reps really understand the value that we're delivering and can get that extra value. Now, once I started seeing that, I lost my fear of having that difficult conversation. I lost that fear that I wasn't worth it, that value of my own services. I could see the data and say, I got some clients here that are, you know, highest margin and these ones at the bottom, if I can swap them out for more like the top, all the extra cash goes right to the bottom line. Mm-hmm. That was the epiphany. And, and that, that whole idea of um, what you're talking about, salespeople wanting the discount, let me close the sale, um, is something that's probably in their short term incentives. If they've got a quota and they want... Uh, or they're, they're, they're getting um, uh, compensation directly based off of um, sales one way or another versus the long-term good of the company, right? So one company I've been fascinated by and have studied for a long time um, is Toyota. And you know, they have a set of 14 management principles. Principle number one of those 14, I think you'd be interested in, Stephen. Um, I'm paraphrasing it, but it basically says, make decisions um, based on the long-term even at the expense of the short term. Wow. And for all the companies that try to copy or emulate Toyota, that principle number one 
is probably the most difficult to copy. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, Mark, you really hit on something. This is another common mistake. I do a lot of speaking. And what I often say is, you know, one of the mistakes people make is they measure the success of their salespeople based on sales. (laughs) Instead of profitability. (laughs) Instead of gross profit. Right. Yeah. And so, and so if your incentive comp is designed to be able to give your sales rep a higher commission for that enhanced bonus, you go in there and you say, okay, this is the minimum. This is the floor. You can't sell below this, but if you can increase it above the floor, if you can identify the values that we can deliver to this prospect, then you'll make more money on the extra piece Then everybody Mm -hmm. wins, including the prospect, because that sales rep is now incentivized, not just, it's like, you know, um, uh, there's a famous study. I read the book. Um, it's about big data. So the, the, the realtors are not designed to help you sell the house with the highest amount of money. Oh, right. It's to sell the house as fast as possible. It didn't, I think that study said realtors, when they're selling their own homes, get a certain percentage higher price than when they're selling someone else's. And if you yourself sell your own home, you beat the realtor all the time because your incentives are different. Yeah. So that's, yeah, yeah it's, it's Freakonomics. It's in Freakonomics is okay. where I yes. read that. Yeah. It's so, been a so, while, but yeah. So, so yeah, you're right. So if you incent the sales reps based on a gross profit percentage, then you get everybody in the company focusing on the most important measure, what mm-hmm. management monitors gets done. Mm-hmm. Gino Wickman wrote that in Traction, what management monitors gets done. Mm-hmm. What do you want to get done? If you want to increase net profit, start by focusing on increasing gross yeah. profit. And, and it sounds like you know trying to grow the company by selling more probably just speeds up the hamster wheel, if you will. Yeah, exactly right. You you create that's why often you see high growth companies have cash flow problems. Mm-hmm. It's not just you know fueling the the um, the you know the the investment to handle all that work. It's it's if you don't really understand your you know, pricing is the most important decision you got. If you really don't understand your, your above the line costs and what your overhead is, what is your nut? You know, how, how much do you have to, does each, this is what we suggest. You take your overhead for the whole year. Let's say you got a million bucks, right? And you, you, you look at how many units, how many jobs, how many customers, how many widgets, whatever you are, you're going to have per um, per widget, per job, per customer, let's say it's 10,000. That means each job has to cover a hundred bucks, hundred bucks worth of overhead. And if you, your gross profit doesn't have that percentage of overhead in it, you're never going to be able to get to your profitability. And then you say, how much profit do I want to make? If I want to make a million dollars in profit and I got $10,000, 10,000 jobs, I need a hundred dollars worth of profit in the bottom line in each job yeah yeah so um again our guest is um stephen king he is uh, the ceo of growth force and uh, one one other thing i wanted to touch on um you you talked earlier about having the client feel good about the price increase and you know how you make that happen because i i can think of times this is the time of year we're recording this in january where all sorts of businesses that you may have an ongoing relationship with will hit you with an email or a sign. And a lot of like what, what bothers me is when it's stated in terms of something like, well, we're in the new year. It's time for our annual price increase. Right. I hate that. 
oh, I hate that. I start cursing under my breath. Yes. Or yes. Um, you know, when 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 it's just framed as like we you know because of such and such we are forced to increase prices. And I I tend to question that. I'm like, well, that's that's your choice. Um, but I wonder if you know that that ends up like in the short term. Curious what your experience is or what your recommendation is of how to make that palatable so that the, the customer doesn't find an alternative as soon as they can. Yeah, I think first is transparency. Mm-hmm. When you, if you really understand those above the line costs and you can actually show them how much time it takes and explain to them, you know, what the things are that you're doing. You know, where when you're in a service business, you hire servants, mm-hmm. people who like to serve. I'm a servant. I love serving my clients. Nothing more that I love that call today to talk about that business about how to help them make more money. Mm-hmm. Your staff often think, okay, I'm going to do a really good job when my client calls up and asks me for extra stuff. I'm going to say, sure, and I'm going to do it for them. Mm-hmm. Because if I make my client happy, I'll make my boss happy. And if my boss is happy, my life is happy. And that time leakage kills you. Mm-hmm. When you overserve the client, it kills you because it erodes your margins. And that comes right out of your bank account. Yeah. And so if you go to a client, you say, look, I just, here's what the deal is. In order to make this account make economic sense for both of us, here's what we need to do. Let me show you what we're doing that's out of scope or that I, I, I honestly, I missed it on the proposal. You know, it's the kind of things like how much time do we spend on emails, phone calls, you know, client interaction, sure, project management quality control. It's the hidden cost of an account. We see typically it's around 20%. And so if you're able to say to a client, look, here's the reality. We have, I have this pricing model that we're implementing that we have to implement in order for us, for the business to make sense, because we can't continue to do it as is, or we were not going to be here for you. Mm-hmm. But it's not a take it or leave it situation. Give them three options. The second option is we can stay in your budget, but 20% of this list has to go because we're spending a lot of time on emails, phone calls, project management, quality control that we never, we're not getting, is not included in the value you're getting. And most of the time, over 80% of the time, and I've been doing this a long time, I've got an IT company, I've got an IT company in New York who has one of the, um, one of the top technology companies that's, you know, one of those S&P companies that are lifting up the S&P right now in the last year, brand name that everybody knows, top 20 worldwide company as their biggest client, 40% of their business. Mm. That client was not covering its share of the overhead. Yeah. And definitely not generating profit. It was dragging down all the other profits. And usually it's the largest account that mm-hmm. you have. Why? Because they have buying power. Yeah. They get the most expensive people in the company. Management, the founders are working on their biggest account. And then the company says, jump, you say how high. Hmm. What happened is, we see this rarely, we have to go to the clients and say, if you want to increase profits, we have to give them those three options. And they're like, oh my God, what if I lose giant technology client. It's on our website. It's how we, you know, it's our, it's our identity. And if the clients are happy with you, if you're doing good work and you can be transparent and show them what they're buying over 80% of the time, the clients will say, of course, we like you guys because you have such good project managers. We like you guys because you do quality control. Yeah, no problem. 
And what we found is when we do that with clients, this particular client, they tried to sell their way to profit. They got to 6 million in revenue, barely breaking even. We repriced the giant technology company. They were like, oh my God, they said, yes. We showed them, I said, look, even if you lose them, you'll actually make more profit as a smaller company. You're better off being a $4 million business making 15% profit than a $6 million business breaking even. Mm -hmm. That's what convinced them. I was like, okay, yes, you're right. Now I'm not afraid to lose them. Yeah. And they and they said yes. And then they went to every one of their clients and says, look, I got increased fees by 20% because I got emails that we our cost of project management, yeah. <laughs> travel time. And we showed the details. All 100% of their clients said yes mm -hmm. because they've given those three options. They either lowered the scope or they increased the fees. Yep. And they made $1.5 million in revenue at the end of that first year on six million in top line. Yeah. So well, there, yeah, one point five million in profit yeah. off of six million revenue. Yeah, twenty five percent. Yeah, because they just value priced everybody, and they were they they realized that it's not how much you earn, it's how much you keep that matters. And when they shifted that focus to looking at gross profit percentage, and everybody in the company focusing on it, the whole business model changed. Yeah, well, that's great that you um, and the team at GrowthWorks get to help. Uh, companies like that. And uh, I, I can see where um, you're, you're coaching them through something that seems really risky, really scary. So to have somebody with experience and examples to point to, to say, I feel pretty confident this will work, um, that I'm sure that means a lot. It's data. You're making a data-driven decision. And, and there's no hiding from the facts, except yeah. in politics. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk about let's, one other question about growth works. Um, so um, I'm, I'm curious if we talk a little bit about, um, you know, company culture and values. You know, what our, our big theme here on the podcast, of course, as you've talked about, um, is learning from mistakes. How is how is that an important part of your culture? What have you learned about that? Yeah, I mean, it is the most single most important part of our culture. You know, we 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 have um, we're an insperity client. So we learned a lot about eight, nine years ago, they came in and they helped us with the human capital strategy. When that basically meant was they helped figure out what are the behaviors that are successful in your business? They actually asked me to point to the, the employee that is the most like the kind of employee you want to point to. And I pointed to right away, Marsha. She was a bookkeeper. She was going to school uh, at night at Lone Star College and working for us full time during the day. But she was accountable. She was a problem solver and she loved her work. And we came up with our core values, which is we have SNAP. It's a smart S-M-A-R-T. We have SNAP. We are problem solvers. We have meaning, meaning our employees, we hire them because they love serving small businesses and nonprofits. Yeah. They are accountable. They do what they say they would do what they do. And they're resourceful. So they'll find problems. And they like working in a team. Mm -hmm. That accountability piece is really the most important of the all. And it's not just you do what you say, you say what you'll do is that you embrace the idea of open, honest communications, mm -hmm. especially around difficult issues, right? I'm a New Yorker from an Irish Catholic family where you knew exactly, my mother at a young age said to me, is like, if your friends don't tell you your breath stinks, nobody will go brush your teeth. <laughs> and so, so by having that kind of open, honest communication, one of the things we kind of brand ourselves as is a learning organization. And what right. that means for us is we want to celebrate and learn from every mistake. 
we just made right. a twenty-two thousand. We just made a twenty-two thousand dollar mistake, and 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 have a lot of lessons about not going into a new vertical industry because it's like you know what that's not going to be good for us. But we pulled the trigger on the first account. It was like you know what let's not expand there. But what we do is, and I used to do it in the early days of Growth Force when you know we were 10, 12, 15 people, and I was no longer able to see every account and every job. What I did was I created an award, which was the best mistake of the month. And what does the best mistake of the month mean? It's the one that we can fix and and have the biggest impact on the business. Yeah. And I remember Jennifer Brown, who's still with me, and Marsha Gibbs, 12 years, eight years later, is now our director of onboarding. Um, Mar- Jennifer was like, I've never been in a place that celebrated. I got I got a gift card for 50 bucks for, for making a mistake. <laughs> and I said, it's because I want everybody to feel like, okay, hey, guys, I just learned something here and I want everybody to know about it. And what we did was, you know, she she fat fingered a sales tax payment mm-hmm. into the into the tax software. And they don't come back to you and say, oh, you entered the bank account number mm-hmm. wrong. Mm-hmm. They just tell you the next day that the payment didn't go through and therefore now you owe a $2,500 sales tax penalty. Yeah. And so by learning that after the first mistake, you avoid that all that down the road. I mean, you put huh. a process in place, you know, we have a second, a second set of eyes, always check sales tax payments every yeah. single time now, but having that, that celebration almost of the mistakes, mm-hmm. you know, we're implementing some, some sales processes right now. And I'm, I'm, when I go on sales calls, I'm literally like, okay, guys, what did I do wrong? How how do we make that better? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we it, it, this felt good, but I stumbled here, and not being afraid to be vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, that, that I mean, that's powerful. I think when you, as the founder and president and CEO, set that example, that 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 I'm sure ends up trickling down through everybody else. They're going to tend to follow that lead, right? Well, when the when the boss makes a lot of dumb mistakes, you better learn from them. <laughs> <laughs> so this um, this best mistake award, that's a different way of saying, in a way, a favorite mistake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We stopped doing it after about six months because my managers are like, you're incenting the wrong behavior. Let's do it another way. So we set up a Slack channel or some kind of, you know, yeah. thing to, to you know, lessons learned. And we we built it into the culture. And we have a, a another thing in Sperry Tots was kudos. At growth force that kind of way. when you learn from somebody from somebody or or a client says something right or somebody does anything that's furthers our core values they help a teammate that they didn't have to or they go above and beyond they're accountable um you send an email out to everybody that just to the management team kudos at growthforce.com and then we celebrate those at the company meeting and we have the teams go up and talk about you know the lessons that they learned or the mm-hmm. You know, so that's a that's a real cheap, easy way to to, to get some employee um, uh, validation and 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 recognition. Um, yeah. that's really valuable. Well, so yeah, even without the award, that communication, like you said, the open, honest communication, that's still a great habit. And um, one of my other guests in in the series, Bob Rush, who has a background in manufacturing, like I did originally, um, he also talked about a similar thing. He worked for an organization that had a um, award for for the best mistake. And they had that same discussion like you're talking about. And he convinced them to keep the award going because he said, well, what what the award does is it it doesn't increase the number of mistakes. It increases the honesty about the mistakes that are already there. So that that, you know, that's that's something that that could be debated and, and discussed. But I think 
to me, what, what sounds like the important thing is that you kept the communication going. That was probably more important than having a prize. Totally. Yes. So really appreciate you sharing um, that story and, and that reflection, Stephen, on top of everything else that you've um, shared today. So, you know, as we wrap up again, we've been joined uh, by Stephen King, um, president, uh, founder, CEO of Growth Force. Um, Stephen, if people want to learn more about your company and and what you do, especially if they fall in that profile of companies you serve, how can they learn more? Sure. Email is the best way to reach me. It's Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, at growthforce.com, or you can reach us at www on the website is www.growthforce.com. That's G-R-O-W-T-H, force.com. And I've got a podcast uh, called Path to Profit. So, you know, we kind of talk to people and share their secrets on how they increase their profitability. And I'm Stephen King CPA on Litter. It's on Litter, on LinkedIn and, uh, and S King G Force at Twitter. And there's no Litter account that I know of. Yeah, some other, you just invented a new social media platform. Exactly what we don't need. But Stephen, thank you. This has been uh, a lot of fun. And um, I hope people will check out, I'll go check out Paths to Profit podcast. See, when you, you're reaching podcast listeners here, that's a good way to not yeah. convert them, but to have them also listen to your podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to pause and think about your own favorite mistake and how learning from mistakes shapes you personally and professionally. If you're a leader, what can you do to create a culture where it's safe for colleagues to talk openly about mistakes in the spirit of learning? Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. See you next time.